Hi, I'm Amy Petaloo, and you're listening to the Afternoon Adha at the Australia India Institute. We're joined today by one of the Institute's academic fellows, Dr. Dolly Kikon. Dolly is a lecturer in anthropology and development studies at the University of Melbourne. Her research focuses on the political economy of extractive resources, development initiatives, gender relations, customary law, and human rights in Northeast India. Today, in celebration of International Women's Day, we're going to be discussing the question, what is the future of gender justice? We'll be drawing on Dolly's insights and work to consider what an Indian lens offers for grappling with this globally significant question. So, Dolly, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Amy. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Dolly, as some of our listeners uh, may know, there's a long history of active agitation and legal reform and grassroots organizing around this question of gender justice in India and South Asia. So I wonder if you can speak to us a bit about how gender justice still remains a really important issue, and then really what you would say are currently the most pressing aspects of that issue today. Amy, that's a very good question that you pose. And I think these two terms, gender and justice, bring, brought together is at the core of understanding the new Indian state after the process of decolonization. And the way that partition took place is an important moment for us as feminists today in India to understand whether it, it was on the East or it was really the partition of uh, Punjab that we are talking about. One of the classics that we read about the Indian state today is really through the lens of sexual violence and through the lens of community violence that was experienced by people on both sides of the border at the time of the partition in 47. That in itself is really a starting point for us to understand the long history of both understanding gender as a category and of justice and what kind of justice that we aim for. And if I may then locate that within my work as somebody coming from Nagaland, somebody located in Northeast India growing up and then going to Delhi in 1994 to do my studies in Delhi University, it became really, really central and important to understand the rampant uh, sexual harassment and also the kind of um, impunity that people even on campus got away with. And also, at the same time, coming from an extremely militarized area to look at different kinds of violence, right? One was militaristic violence in the land that I was coming from. And the other was really a kind of this male violence on uh, Delhi University campus. And the, the part of understanding gender and justice together also then became a really, really important part of how I became political as an undergrad student, and then went on to study law. One thing that we have talked a little bit about is space and gender spaces and how we can think about gender justice and working toward gender justice in an inclusive way. Can you say a little bit more about your thinking about gender justice as an inclusive space? When I think about gender justice and spaces of inclusivity, it starts from where I was raised as a little girl. I grew up with a lot of women around in my life. Uh, being raised, you know, by a single mom in a very, very heavily women-headed uh, 
household. And the kitchen was really an important part in terms of understanding the politics of the body, small things, the cooking, eating together, making sure that there was distribution of labor. And how is it that who would go fetch water from the well? Who would go and get firewood? Who would make the evening dinner? Became really important part of understanding how at the smallest level for a little girl, how labor was distributed, who would take rest at what time, and why is it that we needed to distribute work? Uh, when I grew up, in terms of understanding about spaces of gender injustice, I come from a, a tribal setup who call themselves indigenous to the land, and that's the Naga people. A lot of the traditional councils today and Customary courts during the winters in the mountains are held around fireplaces. In many of the villages, there are no central heating in the mountains. So the most important decisions around the village and the community that I come from are around fireplaces, but women are not allowed to sit there. So from the spaces of the kitchen where I learned politics about body, about spaces of inclusivity, when it transcended to the traditional bodies and the traditional councils, I found that there was no space for women at all because according to Naga customary law, women are not allowed to have membership in the traditional councils, neither they have inheritance rights nor they have child custody rights. So in terms of really growing up, looking at gender, justice, and spaces of inclusion and exclusion became extremely important. When I talk about the kitchen as an important political space, a lot of my very, very intimate and good friends uh, sometimes disagree with me and say women's spaces should be out there on the streets protesting. And I totally see that reason for that because I think even International Women's Day as we celebrate was started by Rosa Luxemburg and her friends, right? So it has a very, very strong European socialist left anti-war origin, which we shouldn't forget. But as I think women of color, as people from the global south, there are other spaces that we need to recognize as spaces of politics. I think that brings us back then to look at how we need to re-examine the notion of the of the public and the private sphere all over again. I, I respect, I think, Nancy Fraser and others who have laid the foundations for us as feminists to really look at theory and to look at the public and the private sphere. But is the domestic really then, right, as a non-political space if we then locate and relegate the kitchen as a non-political space. So today in my life, as I think about how I was raised in a very specific cultural and political milieu under militarization, really almost occupation, uh, I think about these spaces which makes me who I am. And I'm very glad to have this extended conversation with my friends, with my students who sit with me and share my food today. In speaking about this, this recognition of certain spaces that have been gendered as female not being deemed political spaces. So a little bit of what you were just talking about. How does that kind of a logic um, translate into some of the movements for gender justice that we see or just movements for justice in general in India? Um, how do feminist politics intersect with some of these movements? Um, and particularly perhaps in Northeast India where you work, how do you see these questions that feminists bring to justice projects as being um, significant or or what do they come up against in terms of grappling with the complexities of, of justice in a place where it's never only a question of gender? That's a good question. And I have a couple of ways to answer that. I think first is really grappling with the 
issue of conditioning, of social conditioning and political conditioning. Because as a scholar who works on Northeast India, and I really emphasize that, that today if we have to understand the human rights movement in India, we have to understand the vast literature on the right to self-determination, on ethnicity, on homelands, on really citizenship rights. It's places, it's regions like Northeast India, Kashmir, who has actually contributed tremendously in terms of making the debate more rich and more vibrant in India. And that needs to be recognized. Having said that, I think the states of exception that the people in these regions have experienced is also immense. And India needs to recognize that. And when we talk about states of exception, there are two ways. One is really an outsider position where we always saw the Indian Armed Forces as coming into these areas, into these mountains, burning, doing counterinsurgency. But over time, what does violence do, Amy? Violence also then is consumed by the victims. And I think a vast literature tells us that in most militarized societies, there's also an inherent violence within communities. So as communities, really from military societies, when we were pointing to the outsiders in terms of bringing violence within the community, there was a silent impunity that even men enjoyed, right? They were beating up their women. Um, There was sexual violence. Uh, There were all kinds of crime, even in terms of customary law that I told you that women were not given any inheritance rights. And we did not talk about that. So one of the huge... Uh, search that happened in terms of understanding gender and justice together was really these movements that started taking place. Uh, so yes, recognizing sexual violence in military societies, right, as impunity uh, became an important discussion. Secondly, looking at the rights of um, vendors, looking at the rights of uh, street vendors in terms of selling their vegetables, selling clothes in militarized areas, livelihood issues became really, really important. Um, And also, I think talking about children's rights became really important that beyond this conception and this category of gender justice, how is it that we would make it much more inclusive? And one of the things that, that I want to push for, and I still hope that we can make the space large enough, is really to talk about gender in a very, very inclusive sense because we are really going towards and discussing more about the politics of hope. So when you say making that gender space more inclusive, can you say a little bit more about that? Um, In terms of some of these questions of trauma and stuff you were talking about? Yes, yes, because because when it comes to, I think, talking about gender rights in in violent societies, the, the focus is especially on women or on girls, and rightly so. Do not misunderstand me here, rightly so. But children, as a category, being clubbed together, suffer equal trauma, right? suffer equal violence. You have a large number of small boys who go through sexual violence, sexual abuse, that are never reported because on the ground, there are no counseling centers for boys and for men who go through sexual abuse. There's just no fun. Everything's geared towards the girl and the woman, And also by doing that, I think we really fall in a trap, which is very insidious, once again, that only the biological body, the the body that can reproduce another human being, that can have a baby, can understand 
what trauma is. So what about single fathers in conflict areas where, you know, the women go away and say, all right, that's it. I'm not going to play the role of a mother anymore. I'm tired of this. I'm going elsewhere. What about single father? We don't really talk about single father. We really don't talk about boys who are going through really the trauma of being defined as losers in societies because the kind of burden they have to prove themselves to be men, especially in traditional indigenous tribal societies, is huge, right? They're supposed to grow up. They're supposed to become members in a council. They're supposed to be the face of the family. But over time, what's happened in these hugely militarized societies across Northeast India, Central India, Kashmir, is that a lot of women find, find employment. For example, at the hospitality sector, that's where my postdoc research work was focused on, on indigenous migration. Men would say, we don't find jobs to work in a salon, to work as masseurs, to work as waitresses. Women immediately do. If you are 18 and you're beautiful and you're exotic, of course, a hotel manager would want you to be serving the clients, not boys. So over time, in this really impoverished impoverished, and in this really militarized violent societies, women in the last 15 years have been able to go out, earn and bring money, right? They go today as far as Dubai, Singapore, Hong Kong as domestic maids from Northeast India, from Nepal, from the Himalayas. Who stays back? It's men in many cases. And I think a huge literature shows us how then gender and relations and in terms of this changing within the family unit has a huge impact. So I think that's why I really emphasize that talking about gender justice on International Women's Day here um, is also about pushing for an inclusive gender conversation that we need to have. Thinking about these questions that, that continue to be significant around gender justice. Given your background working on human rights issues and with law, can you say something about the role of law and perhaps the limitations of law in terms of of working for gender justice and realizing gender justice in India as well as beyond? That's, (laughs) That's something very close to my heart. And as an undergrad student, of history in Delhi University, looking at really the the level of violence that was taking place all over India, the the region that I come from, Northeast India. I met friends from Kashmir, from South India, and I think we had very similar stories to tell in terms of violence. I went to law school, and throughout the time when I studied in law school, I was obsessed with this law uh, in India called the Armed Forces Special Spar Act. The Armed Forces Special Spar Act gives the right to an Indian armed personnel to shoot at sight, to kill on the basis of mere suspicion. And I was obsessed with this law. And I was involved as a member of human rights groups in Delhi to call for a repeal of this. In 1997, the Supreme Court of India brought out a judgment and said it's a good law. And... That was a huge point of reflection for all of us. We were young, all in our 20s. And I think that is when I really began to think about law in a very different way. Uh, Law as regulations that's top down from state, order, discipline in a way of regulating citizens. But often I don't see law and justice together in the same framework. I think justice is much more greater 
It's a philosophy. It's a way of life. It's a practice. It's a connection. It's it's a way of becoming more human. And how do we reach out? Law can be limited within a territory, within a particular country, uh, within a particular community. But justice should be a way of expressing freedom where we reach out to one another as human beings, irrespective of our class, of our caste, of our sexuality, of our beliefs. Law, surely it's there, but justice so much more, so much more that we can do with it. Given your background working in India and thinking about these various questions of gender justice and how it relates um, in other areas, what kind of lessons do you think we can take from India and South Asia in terms of thinking about gender justice on a global scale or in other places as well? Are there certain things um, that come out of that work that would be particular lessons or insights around gender justice? You know, as part of a very large group of women organizations and networks, it may sound cliched, but one of the things that we can take away to the world from this vast region that you call South Asia, which comprises of Nepal, Bangladesh, uh, Pakistan, India, uh, Sri Lanka, is the beauty of love. And I say this, it's the beauty of love, compassion, and affection, because over the years that I have spent International Women's Day and also amazing women conferences and panels, has been this overwhelming pouring of affection intergenerational, singers from Pakistan, dancers from Sri Lanka, poets from Nepal who have come together and they've sung and they've danced and they've shared their stories of survival. And I think if there's a lesson that we can see from the amazing spirit is that often when we talk about justice, gender, rights, I think we professionalize it too much. And we see that by professionalizing, by talking about theories, by talking about in a way that makes sense, it serves a purpose, but often it doesn't. Right? Because in that process, we lose our humanity. It's okay sometimes to talk about gender justice just by dancing. It's okay to talk about gender justice just through poetry. And if we then recognize that, that as humans, we have different ways of expressing what brings joy to us, what brings us to our essence of being humans. I think that's the beauty of it. And that's what I've learned being part of this vast region called South Asia, where I have had the opportunity to share with my teachers, with my colleagues, with my friends who are activists, with amazing men and women who have been part of the movement for gender justice. So I really liked how you were um, talking about some of the, the lessons that have been really important for you working in gender justice and human rights spaces in South Asia, coming out of the work of artists, um, of dancers, of song, of poetry. I'm wondering if you can share with us an example um, of that kind of artistic work and how that sheds some light on gender justice. I just came back from India a month ago after really enjoying a new publication edited by a very dear friend who's an artist from Assam, Parasmita Singh. And it's a book called Centerpiece, New Art and Writings from Northeast India. And this is a wonderful book. It has artists, 
just illustrations. It has poets. It has uh, researchers writing about their experience. And I would like to read two very small poems in a way to emphasize what is it that I mean by this joy, by this love of belonging to this community talking about justice. This uh, is written by a very dear friend from the state of Manipur. Her name is Tingam Angelika Samom. And she writes this series of poetry just called Hashtag Poetry. And there are two pieces that I want to read about the mundane experiences of just sitting and being a woman and at the same time being angry and at the same time being hopeful, talking about politics and fantasy and dream. So this is called Moon Trip. If I do not want to bring myself back from my trip to the moon, just to sort out the rotten chives and put out the soggy dried fish in the sun, would you still call me less a woman? The second poem that I want to read, a short one that she writes again, is called Kitchen Lines. How can we be equals when I still pay the difference between the whole beans and the shelled with my time? Wow. Thank you, Dolly. Both of those poems were really powerful statements in just a few words to think about, as you said earlier, embodiment in women's experiences and how those connect to gender justice questions as well. It's been really wonderful discussing these issues with you today on International Women's Day. Thank you so much for joining us. And this has been the Afternoon Ada. Thank you, Amy. It was a pleasure to be here.